Welcome to Anarchists and Androids. I am your host, Pearl, and here today with me are our stalwart co-hosts, Logar the Barbarian. Hello, I am Logar the Barbarian. And parentheses, I. Oh, hello, everyone. So I saw a movie at the theater this week. Yeah, I guess we all did. <laughs> I guess we all saw it on opening night, yeah. Yeah, well... <laughs> Thursday night. It's actually opening night's the 11th, which which was uh, free food day for me. And <laughs> and uh, but they as they've been doing with the big budget Marvel and DC films, they have the night before they usually open it up that evening. You can go see it the day before opening night. That's kind of a tradition that started like around the big hoopla i want to say in, in in the late 90s that started happening more and more i noticed it was like a big thing to do opening nights and especially after around uh what episode one when that yeah. came out i remember distinctly all of the hype surrounding the opening of phantom menace when that came out and it seemed like that was the first real sort of cultural touch point for an opening night specifically in which it became an event and it was almost like the template for what genre culture would become over these next subsequent 20 years you know yeah i i i was i was on the radio and in the newspaper and everything else for waiting in lines and showing up in costumes and <laughs> it was pretty oh yeah <laughs> yeah you were a real cultural mover and shaker yeah Black Panther, Wakanda, forever. I I I I loved this movie for many reasons, and I don't know where to start. Except I'm gonna I would like to start rambling about Namor for a minute. <laughs> oh, you immediately go into Namor. <laughs> I immediately go into Namor because I'm not gonna lie. Since they started making big budget Marvel comic movies, I've been saying I want to see Namor. I want to see Namor, and I finally get to see Namor. I knew that great things could be done with Namor, and I'm gonna put this up front for everyone listening. Probably gonna be a lot of spoilers here. I don't know how spoiler heavy we'll get. Maybe some of the big things we'll keep to ourselves, but. But like, let's not talk about the after credit scene. There's one; it is not two, and I, maybe that will be a spoiler. We won't give away. But I, I'm going to say that that as a character, he has changed a great deal from the comics, and as a big Marvel comics fan, that is good. And what they did with it, I freaking loved. And they leaned into things that I was impressed with. And that me, who I am, just politically, philosophically, what I stay, what I what I believe in, the things I've been passionate about over years, I feel that they improved him along those lines. Originally, Namor's origin was it just was like, hey, my dad was a sea captain. It was like, okay, it wasn't that interesting. They took a step towards uh, addressing colonialism, like conquistadors when the Spain Spanish were invading. And kind of rooted Namor's origin in that, in uh, the slavery and exploitation that was occurring throughout Latin America at the time as Spain came, was coming over invading. And 100%, like, 
the first Black Panther movie, I, I've said for years, Killmonger was right since that came out. I was a big fan of Killmonger, kind of the good guy in the situation, fighting against colonialism. And they leaned more into that. And I felt that they did a better job leaning into going against colonialism in this movie than the first one. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like analogous to like the colonialism. Yeah. Like you mentioned, like Spain with the Americas, as well as uh, I guess, and particularly they seem to highlight the French uh, colonizing Africa. Yes. Yeah. And then, of course, the U.S. wants to dominate the world. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that that was really interesting that they leaned into uh, starting at the top, that they really leaned into putting the French on blast because they've had a pass for quite a while. No, I'm I'm joking. But, but not. to be honest, I, th I think that folks who have more of a U.S. American centric political lens or viewpoint just your general person may not be fully aware of the history of French colonization of Africa and also of huge swaths of Asia and parts of Latin America as well. I think that French colonization, because oftentimes we as Americans sort of look to the French as being much more progressive or being much more kind of this, uh, this other sort of left-leaning society, we forget that there is also this brutal legacy of colonization and subjugation and white supremacy on a global scale. And I think that this movie does a really interesting job of kind of teasing that out a little bit for a casual American viewer who may not be as aware of just the wide scale of European colonization. And I think that it was done in a way that would incite curiosity in folks, especially in younger viewers. So I, I I feel the way that they were kind of steering it, it was really a well done and well thought out way of engaging folks politically at a level that they would be able to kind of understand. Yeah. 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 You need lots of crazy special effects and eye candy <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> instead of books and lectures. Yeah, exactly. flying through the air with his little wings on his feet. I love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Brett Tube has got some production values, but it's not on the scale of like a Marvel movie, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Now, it addresses colonialism big time throughout the movie, I feel, it, it, it more so than most superhero movies do. And I want to point out that we just got Black Adam that kind of does, does a similar thing, maybe not as on a large and um, intricate scale as what we saw in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. But mm -hmm. these characters like Namor, Namor shows up in the comics in the 30s and and um is, is kind of seen as a villain through a lot of the marvel history black adam is kind of a villain there's a there's a trend here where the people mm -hmm. who are addressing colonialism in the comics and these kinds of problems that are global scale or crimes against humanity are painted as villains yeah uh i feel that's worth pointing out now at the other hand what's really cool about the movie is that while Namor's kind of painted as an anti-hero or a villain, the heroes of the movie definitely were Black women. And that is cool. Mm -hmm. Now, 
we're a bunch of white folks sitting here talking about a movie for this. So that needs to probably be noted where, where we, you know, who we are speaking on this. But it was cool. We got to see Ironheart. And I was really impressed how her story was woven into the overall story. And we get to see, you know, the new Black Panther, who I don't know. Should I, it, it, did everybody figure it out before the movie came up? Because everybody's been speculating <laughs> since forever who the new Black Panther would be. Wow, that's crazy. Because, like, I knew immediately who the next one would be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How could it be a secret? I, I'm, I'm a big Marvel Comics fan. And... Ironheart's a little bit after my 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 era of reading, but I tend to pick up the Marvel Comics app, the Unlimited app, and read stuff here and there. And when I started seeing a lot of the new popular characters come out in the last decades, like uh, you've got a Ghost Spider with Spider Gwen and Ironheart, for example, is just two of them. I I, I ran I, I tried to check out some of those comics and learn about those characters because they're becoming more popular Marvel characters, and I like. I like Ironheart. She's a cool character, and 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 I think it's she's a very unique character in her own ways. While she does kind of echo of other characters of the past, specifically Tony Stark, and her story in the comics is very aligned with Tony Stark's. Pearl. <laughs> so I kind of want to bring up a specific topic regarding Ironheart and Tony Stark, and that is the topic of access and privilege which I kind of brought up when we were talking about uh, She-Hulk before and how many times money buys access, influence, and the privilege and benefit of societal functioning. Like you're just able to function much more easily. This happens pretty close to the beginning of the movie, so I don't feel like this is much of a spoiler, but there is... (laughs) Spoiler alert. Spoiler away. (laughs) <laughs> so 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 folks skip a little bit if you if you don't want this particular spoiler but um there is a machine that is sort of like the narrative crux of the first act of the film and it's a very mysterious machine that is used to locate vibranium and the whole first act of the film is kind of wondering Oh, who who invented this for the U.S. government? Well, it turns out that it was a machine that was kind of cobbled together from many different sources and many different parts. And they find the inventor of the machine, who is Riri Williams, Ironheart. And it turns out that her design was essentially stolen and she wasn't compensated or the use of the technology she developed, which was developed using her accessing the resources that were available. And you look at this as a contrast to Tony Stark, who canonically is contracted by the US government. And in the comics, by the way, he was, uh, I wanna say he was Secretary of Defense for a couple of years post war. So you've got Tony Stark, who is canonically contracted and compensated by the U.S. government when he was already a billionaire. And then you've got Riri Williams, who is canonically more intelligent and has a higher IQ and is smarter than Tony Stark, who is able to build this level of sophisticated technology and revolutionize essentially the the search for vibranium outside of Wakanda in the first act of the film 
but has her technology stolen and it was only made from the resources she had available. So I think that that is something that in some of the narratives that I've seen discussed around the film, it's not really like there's not been this observation of the comparison of the two. But how typical is it that we see culturally that people of color's contributions are strip mined and unremarked upon? This is not just saying with with technology, this is saying with art. We see it very often. There's many folks who are artists who are people of color who have their designs stolen and put on like cell phone cases. You see it very often in clothing design. You see it all over the place. And I think that this particular aspect of the storyline, it's really one of those things that they don't spend a lot of time kind of focusing on it when we're discussing the general discourse of the film. But I think that we should we should kind of it should not go unremarked upon or unobserved. Yeah. And I was thinking you could also with that character Riri Williams that you could say like the three different governments were going after her in this movie. Yes. <laughs> yes. Know? Yeah, the US government, uh Wakanda and Talokan. Yes. And yeah. and now that was another change because the old OG uh, name was from Atlantis, so they they changed, and I like that change. But uh, moving on, let's let's talk about the governments because we are they are like stories of nations and nation states essentially. Because you have you have the country of Wakanda, um, you have is it is it pronounced? What is the how is the uh, Talokan? Telocon, and I'm gonna have to get used to saying that because I, I don't, I, I'm having, I'm struggling getting my tongue around that. I feel horrible. Um, telecon, and then of course you have the United States government. The CIA gets involved in this. Now, what? Well, as an anarchist, I'm not an unreasonable human being. I understand, you know, the world we live in and the interactions between states are very real and dominant. This is kind of like my critique of how they approach things is a large reason of why I why I stand where I stand politically. Um, I think it's interesting to say that this is kind of critiquing world politics as they existed, where there are some nations who dominate others. And uh, what's interesting is that Wakanda itself, I don't, there is no nation, uh, the closest thing I can think of to Wakanda on a socio-political like scale and just in general, their stance of like non-interventionalism would have been, was it Switzerland that was tried to remain neutral in times of war throughout the 20th century? Wasn't that who it was? But but that's just uh, like not the norm in, in political conflicts. The norm is that, you know, they actually stated in the movie that these governments were looking to extract resources from other countries. And they're saying, look, we don't want you to come in here and extract our resources. But that's a very mm -hmm. real dynamic of states is that for these companies, for profit, for warfare, they go into countries and extract resources. This was Namor's whole stick in, in just yeah. the entire conflict of the movie that rises up between Wakanda and 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 the the folks under the sea they they go to they go to, <laughs> they, go yeah, yeah. to uh, they go to conflict over the fact they don't want to be he doesn't want to even be known he wants yeah. the surface world to not know of their existence to be left in relative peace because they don't want you know the u.s the french you know 
going down there and trying to mine and extract this valuable resource they hold. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah, interesting thing, because like the end of the Black Panther one is like it ends with this sense of benevolence. We're opening up to the world and we're going to help the world with our technology and resources. And then it turns out that after they did that, then the U.S. in particular tried to immediately like seize as much of that vibranium and power as they can. So mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of t- turn on, on its head, you know, that whole benevolence to like, you know, U.S. wanting aggression. Now, I really would like to, I, I, I'm dying. So we're going to we're going to have to come back to this movie on another episode in the future after I've had a couple more sit downs with it. And after it's come on to Disney Plus and I've been able to sit down in my living room and take notes because there's some things I want to I want to go back and double check. But they were yeah. in, in, in the U.N. They were specifically addressing and referring to in conflict with the the French, as we spoke of. But the troops that actually tried to seize the vibranium that were sent in they said they they kind of were vague if they were french or not i wasn't 100 percent clear what they said oh you'll know whose it is i i want to rewatch that scene and see if they were explicit that they were french troops they were speaking they left in a french movie. oh were they yeah yeah and i think in africa like uh, france does send a lot of like military operations to different countries in africa mm-hmm. i kind of want to bring up too because we discussed how when Wakanda opened up, the U.S. immediately begins extraction, like extractionist sort of policies when it comes to resources, right? And then you see the primary concern and source of tension with Teclocon being, we do not want to also fall prey to this extraction to this extractionist capitalistic exploitation kind of policy that we know happens when a previously resource-rich and isolated independent nation opens itself up. And from there, the conflict between Wakanda and Teclocon begins. I think that that also shows the influence of global white supremacy because essentially the US and the the, uh, French are in this position where they're essentially Wakanda and Teclocon are pitted against one another. And then the French and the US are kind of sitting back mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, all right, well, we don't really have to do anything here. And we'll be able to go to whoever's weakest following this conflict. And then we'll be able to take all the vibranium we need, which is essentially the concern of a particular character that I don't want to spoil when they show up. <laughs> because I was literally like, oh, oh, so I don't want to, this oh. one, I'm, I'm not going to say. Who oh, no, 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 I, I encourage you to, to say it. Yeah, I'd say like the spoiler warning has already been made. Yeah, so we, we put have the spoiler it. warning at the beginning. <laughs> if you're listening to this, either you've seen it or you don't care if it's spoiled. <laughs> so when Elaine shows up from Seinfeld. Oh, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jerry, what's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who turns out to be like you know, after Seinfeld, she then became head of CIA, <laughs> right? Just like she was at the JP, <laughs> the J. Peter McCallock. She shows up, vibranium, it's a peach, and she's smoking a cigar. I love Seinfeld, but anyway, but I digress. That is essentially what she communicates as her primary concern. She says, Oh, if the U.S., my dream is that the U.S. is the only one. With with vibranium and then that's kind of when the final act of the film is set up when you have the conflict between Wakanda and Teclocon and then 
it, it is like kind of a building realization that this is a conflict that has been fostered and generated by outside forces for the benefit of which we know as kind of left-leaning people, it's for the benefit of white supremacy, global white supremacy. But I think that the way that, again, uh, the film communicates it, it is something that is really, would be really resonant to somebody who is maybe not as familiar with kind of leftist politics. So it makes that kind of thing really overt. And it is, I think, pretty accessible to a lot of different viewers of all various political stripes, because we know that everybody pretty much sees Marvel movies at some point, like these massive franchises. Yeah, and with that conflict between Wakanda and Italo Khan, like, that always struck me, like, as totally unnecessary, that, like, out of all the nations in the world, like, those two countries have the most in common, these secretive, vibranium-based heads of state that have superpowers kind of countries, right? Uh, But, like, I, I realize, yeah, it's like, the whole kind of like ultimatums and defensiveness and retaliation, those things, those qualities made the conflict come about, you know, mm-hmm. and otherwise they totally could have gotten along from the very beginning. Yeah. <clears throat> but because, yeah, because Namo showed up and made a, you know, a threat ultimatum and, and then like, you know, everyone's like on edge and defensive and then like someone right. gets ki- kidnapped or killed and then there's retaliation and it goes on from there. Right, but essentially the tension is originally sourced and created by the U.S. and the French. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. ultimately that's the origin of the tension. It's not between because, you know, Teclacon and Wakanda have a history of conflict. It is because of the U.S. and the French. Yeah. And like the fear of oppression from those two forces. Because again, and I think that the film does a really good there's a really effective way of conveying a history of trauma that emerges for an entire society when they've been sub- when when an entire society has been subjugated and enslaved for centuries and the observation of that trauma and incorporating it into identity like that is the source of, of the conflict is, is that trauma and that fear that comes about. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's interesting too, because like they kind of draw a connection between the Talokan and the Mayan civilization, which in the Mayans were basically wiped out. And so they kind of like insinuate then that the Talokan is like a similar civilization that was just wiped out, just like the Mayans were by the European <laughs> imperialists. Yes. I mean, a culture is never, and a people is never truly like erased. There's always traces of that culture and that, and 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 that people who remain, which is, I think, another through line of the film, that it that truly a people, people are truly resilient. Mm -hmm. Cultures are truly resilient. It doesn't mean that you come through it without a sense of collective trauma yeah well i want to i want to put out one thing too um well there is genocide that has occurred in the western forces right. have done there are people that have been completely yes. wiped out. but i want to talk about killmonger for a minute and i want to because spoiler alert i'm a huge michael b jordan fan i think he's super cool i'm really stoked for creed three especially because he's fighting jonathan majors i'm like uh, i'm a big yeah. jonathan majors fan at this point too i'm like yeah i'm here for it but 
I loved Killmonger in the first movie. What irritates me about this is the way he's presented the first movie bothered me a bit because he is a villain because he wants to use weapons for liberation. Yet the heroes traditionally are doing just that. The U.S. is a hero. We dropped a goddamn nuclear weapon on two damn cities. The only people in human history to just eradicate life on that scale. And yet this guy wants to take arms against it. So he's a villain. So there's this really skewed thing we have when people try to retaliate against oppressors where they become a villain using the same tactics as the oppressors. These are superheroes. They're all using violence against each other and killing people to win and save the day. So at what point, and, and I think that what was interesting is I feel that this is addressed further. Now they kind of lean into like, is it for vengeance or is it for, yeah, maybe sometimes actions are for vengeance. Cause when your family's slaughtered, you're going to be pretty pissed off at the people who did it. I, I don't see how that's worse than what the United States has been doing globally for the last century, at least. It, it makes no sense to me how one is bad and one is good. It, that is just kind of an ethnocentric type of thing that we have done in comics and in films and everything else. So I liked that we got a little more ambiguous with this in this film. And there was a lot less of that hard line, like you used violence, so you're the bad guy. And Michael B. Jordan made an appearance and I was thrilled to see him. I was very happy with that. I'm a big Killmonger fan. <laughs> and, yeah. Oh, and also, yeah, you mentioned, what was it? Uh, what's the name of the, from that Creed movie that John, uh, John, John, Jonathan Majors. Jonathan Majors. Yeah. Yeah. Because they also, before the movie, they had the trailer for Ant-Man 3. Quantum and Amazing. he's going to be in that, yeah. For, I cannot uh, wait. <laughs> yeah. He looked cool as Kang in some of those shots. <laughs> I am psyched to see that movie. We will definitely be talking about that here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am a longtime Marvel geek. I have been a Marvel geek for like 40 years at this point, and it's not going to stop. Now, I'm going to say that my excitement for this movie largely, I'm not going to lie, the Namor thing was a big part of it because when I was a kid, one of the earliest superheroes I remember seeing was Namor on the cartoons, the old 66 cartoon that used to play. And in my mind, he's seared in there as this iconic image in his little green shorts, like Superman, <laughs> like one of the iconic heroes. That's why I geeked out so much about the Namor thing. But there's so much going on in this film. And Wakanda is amazing. They did, they, there's so much to address here. And I, my question is, one of the some of the things I was wondering about is like the lineage and passing down. So so with Shuri becoming the Black Panther, but who leads the nation and stuff like that, like who becomes kings and queens after one dies. I was a little fuzzy on what those boundaries are, but again, it's fiction. I don't know if they need to go 100% into all that as well. Yeah, what's that guy's name? Was it Baku or something? Yes, uh, Baku. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they kind of imply that he becomes king. Yeah, that's what least, I was getting. Yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's what I assumed. Because uh, at the so in the first movie, it's all around the conflict for king, and and you know you have you have T'Challa fighting Mbaku for the head and whatnot at one point in time. Then you have Killmonger comes in and challenges him as his cousin and whatnot. Uh, so that whole scene is kind of revisited. Only there isn't a, there. I think it's interesting that they're not challenging each other and fighting each other at that point that was the focus for power and struggle between all those men in the first movie yeah. i think there may be something there <laughs> yeah. 
I'm excited to see where that goes. Oh, yeah, for Black Panther 3. (laughs) What direction are they going to go in Black Panther 3? I'm curious. I guess I guess we're going to get. Yeah, well, we're not even there yet. That's probably years away. Ryan Coogler is his name, correct? The director, Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler. Yeah. Wow. Like Black Panther, the first Black Panther was good. Uh, this Black Panther Wakanda Forever, in my mind, is one of the best Marvel movies, and largely because of the socio-political elements included in it. It's 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 a long yeah. way from Captain America, the first oh, Avenger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think too that it is probably one of the most emotionally resonant kind of genre films exploring the process of grieving. Mm-hmm. on both a personal scale and also kind of like a cultural scale as well mm-hmm. because of course like Chadwick Boseman his passing is something that is not just kind of glossed over I think that there's, there's been kind of a, a tradition I think with genre where a particular character will pass away or an actor portraying that character will pass away and then there'll be somebody who shows up and it's like I'm such and such part two I look kind of the same except my hair is a different color you know what I mean like I think that's something that has conveniently occurred in a lot of comics and and film adaptations so I think that it I think it's a testament to who Chadwick Boseman as a person was that his presence is truly felt in the film as is his absence. And that is truly what grief is. It's feeling your loved one's presence and then also feeling their absence. And the film makes you sit with it. And it is a very intense emotional experience. Like mm-hmm. it is, it, it, it is, it's a journey. <laughs> it is oh, truly no. a journey. But I think that it is so bold for a mainstream superhero film to take you on that kind of emotional journey. Logar and I saw it with all of our family, and I have a tendency to really cry a lot in general. But this movie, I was like, oh, (laughs) even watching the promotional material, like leading up to it, there was like specials and things talking about behind the scenes stuff. And I'm always about that like just crying because of the honor that this film gives to the grieving process of someone who is truly a remarkable, great person. It's it's just remarkable. Yeah, and one thing I thought was interesting was the Marvel scroll that they always do usually shows all the characters, but this one was just a tribute to Chadwick Boseman. He was the only one used in the Marvel scroll. I thought that was really neat. Yeah, and they didn't have like the traditional Marvel song theme song yes. when they played it yes. it was just quiet yeah well, I, i'm curious uh i when you went to go see it how did folks kind of react during that scroll because when logar and i went to see it the theater was dead silent yeah it's, yeah same for me too i'm gonna say we're, we're about 33 minutes in i want to make sure we hit everything and everybody wants to hit on uh did anybody does anybody with me have anything they want to Oh, yeah. I just wanted to point out the tragic story of the queen. I forget her name, but uh, played by Angela Bassett. Yes. Like, like her story, it's kind of like Princess Leia in the sense of like, she had to deal with so much loss. Like, 
for her, like she had to deal with like her husband dying, her son dying. Mm -hmm. At one point she thought her daughter Suri died and then she died too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she was amazing. Yeah. She was amazing in it. Give Angela Bassett an Oscar. Yeah. I'm sure the Academy listens to this podcast, so. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, and then I guess another point is uh, the Julia Louise Dreyfus character, you know, Mm -hmm. she's a, she has a long name too, uh, the, the fictional character. But like, so uh, what you look at like the movie Black Widow and then also the, was it The Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She uh, appears in both and uh, it seems like she's assembling like a superhero team. I guess that would be under the supervision of the CIA. Yeah, I think that's going to be the Thunderbolts. I think oh. she's assembling the Thunderbolts. And oh. which, is, which is very apt because... Uh, the Thunderbolts, the original comic, they were supervillains, essentially. So having the CIA assemble the supervillain superhero team, I feel, is, yeah. is an interesting approach. And I'm curious where Marvel's going to go after seeing Black Panther Wakanda forever and her involvement there. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I assume that they would use it to have the U.S. dominate the world. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Uh, and what, yeah. And, That's and like her goal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it got U.S. agent in there, and we've seen how they portrayed U.S. agent. If you haven't, you mm-hmm. need to go back and watch. That was interesting. We need to go over. We need to do an episode on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier because I have a lot of thoughts on that, sociopolitically and everything else. A lot of things I can say mm-hmm. on that show. Some critiques, but there's some great stuff too. Ooh, that's a good idea. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Parenthesis I, would you like to to tell folks where they can find you on the oh. internets? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the the shit show known as Twitter. <laughs> 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 yeah, on uh, at parenthesis I. I hear that I... shows in its final season. Oh yeah. <laughs> My heart breaks. I've been on Twitter since early, I think it was like January 2009 and and it's probably one of my favorite places to be social media wise and I and I really don't want it to happen what's happening. But we'll oh, see. Yeah. yeah, and then also yeah, at parenthesis i.blogspot.com. And that's E Y E. Oh, yes. Yeah. You can find me daily on the Wobblies and Wizards podcast right here. Uh, Wobbliesandwizards.com is my blog. I'm on Twitter at Logar Hale Crom. Now, everyone has their... How does it go? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, everyone has their own rebellion. Excellent.